Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, my uh, guest today is a man who likes to talk. He is uh, a comedian and uh, musician as well. And that's why he's on my podcast today. His name is the great Sam Rhodes. And, Hello, sir. Uh, how are you doing? It's been a while. It has been a while, sir. Yeah, it's been too long. That's how long yeah, it's I was been. Supposed to go, I was supposed to go to your thing in Camden March, but I went home before that happened, and then lockdown happened. Yeah. And you were in, I think you were in Europe at the time. You were around Europe. Yeah, I was all over the place. I was off in Germany doing some shows, I think. Yeah, but... I remember. It was very funny because I was traveling around Germany and I was seeing people in masks and what looked like hazmat suits <laughs> and I was laughing at them. Ha 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 Look at these silly people. But now, of course, we know that those were the correct people. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, basically, we've known each other for a while now. And I dare say you're a good friend of mine by yeah. now. And uh, we kind of got a funny origin story, actually. We have indeed. So, so try to tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so you turned <laughs> up to do the open mic at my open mic that I ran. And, actually, uh, actually, I wanted to do, you say we met that night, but actually, didn't I was in the Dalton one before oh, a few right. weeks ago? Yeah. Before, and then you mentioned that we that I was going to the other one on Monday, which is in Hackney. Oh, of course, and you popped and, in. Yeah, yes. and you and you did actually give the wrong address because I showed up early to the other one in Dalton. <laughs> So I was happy, very, very happy with being early. But then yeah. you said, oh, shit, I've got to run your dress. It's in Hackney on Mondays. <laughs> but you turned but yeah. up, didn't you? Yeah. You, met, <laughs> yeah. you met a nice young woman who you yeah. were chatting away to. <laughs> and you obviously thought you'd made some sort of connection because you then asked her out the date. Only yeah. for her to reveal that she was actually my girlfriend. <laughs> and we've been enemies ever since. <laughs> yes, that's it. The first thing you did was come and try and pick up on my girlfriend at the show. To be fair, <laughs> to be fair, you never made an indication that you were together. Oh, I see. So it's fair game, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you never made and you never made any, any indication that you were together. Like you never yeah. held hands or were talking. <laughs> so how can I know? In my defense, that's it. I was busy running a show, wasn't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, it's kind of, we've actually made a running gag out of it. And I'm sure he will mention it again once I'm back in uh, London. But yeah, you wanted to do some uh, introduction to what we're going to talk about here today? Yeah, I was just going to see if you can hear this, actually, because I've only I've only got a very directional mic. So if you can hear this, we can have yep. it in there. Oh, perfect. That's the sound I love. I hear it perfectly. Can you hear that? Yes, sir. Yeah, so... We're going to talk today about a bit of rock and roll. That's right. So if you want to do some jamming for us, that will be <laughs> Say fantastic. again, sorry? 
If you introduce some jam, little jamming for us. Oh, yeah, we'll have a little fantastic. bit of the blues to kick us off, shall we? Of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so... Tonight's, if that didn't give it away, our history of subject today is rock and roll. Now, we're going to discuss how it began, where it comes from, and some iconic characters in that created the music that we know and love today. So I just want to start with uh, perhaps many people who is not invested, as you and me, in, to, in the history of rock and roll may not know who this is, but who is Sam Phillips and why is he such an important character to music history as we know it today? So uh, Sam Phillips was an amazing radio presenter and producer who lived down in Memphis, Tennessee, and he uh, set up a little radio station uh, where he also had a little recording booth and he would invite local artists to come and record and if he liked what they recorded, He'd put it on his little local radio and he'd also press it with an acetane press onto a vinyl that you could buy. And it just so happened that one day a young man named Elvis Presley wandered into his little office to record a song for his mum. And uh, Sam Phillips heard it and went, wait a minute, I think this is the sound of a new generation. And he recorded it and he played it and it was pretty damn good and everybody got on board very quickly. <laughs> But what we're going, but of course, before that, it was quite struggling quite a bit, and how, how because it was the, it was kind of a recording studio for everyone to record, and everyone who wanted to to come yeah. in and record. So, what tell me a little bit about, about this? And what what was this vision for Sun Records? So basically, uh, in the early days of Sun Records, I'm led to believe like if you had a couple of dollars, you could go and record anything. So you'd have people doing jingles for local radio you'd have people doing a song for their mum. you'd have all of this sort of thing um but as i said what he had that other people didn't have was an ascertained pressing system where he could actually press what you'd recorded onto vinyl for you uh and it was once it had been pressed onto vinyl which could be done almost instantaneously like as you were recording it he could then broadcast it on the radio and i think he was always hoping that someone like elvis was going to wander in and he was right. going to find something because th what people don't realize is now music is global, obviously. But in the early days of radio like that, you know, you would have bands or artists who were only famous in very, very small areas. So I think he was just hoping that one of the local singers would be famous enough that maybe he could throw a bit of branding on, maybe advertise at their gigs and then get a bit of local custom. But little right. did he know, you know, as I said, he basically is the architect of modern day rock and roll. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And of course, he had recorded artists such as BB King and uh, Howling Wolf. And how did he meet uh, like BB King? How did he? I honestly, well, did... I couldn't tell you how he met BB King, but I know that BB King was doing an awful lot of stuff in an awful lot of studios at that point. Because, as I said, you know, you wouldn't even release a single or an album necessarily. You'd kind of, uh, you'd kind of move between places. You know, you'd do one little bit of recording here, one bit of recording there. So he'd probably dropped him while he was about. I know, I think Howling Wolf came in to do some advertising, if I'm correct. And then he ended up right. working with Howling Wolf, which is pretty cool. And Howling Wolf, for people who don't know, 
might be among the most in influential singers in about 20 years time because mm. Howling Wolf is the guy that all of the sort of 70s rock bands were really mimicking to get the vocals and the biggest one of course is bands like Led Zeppelin they were right. huge Howling Wolf fans and that's how you ended up with that sort of screamy ah! sort of singing it was all from it was all from him right and of course um Little, this is a little fun story. If you've seen the documentary, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but it was a few years ago, I think. Keith Richard met and partied with Howling Wolf in oh, the wow. same house. Yeah. That's pretty darn amazing. I bet they were fast friends, because I know the Stones especially were huge fans of all of his work, you know. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, um, he also had a vision for what like he wanted to find. He wanted to find a... Uh, White man with black voice, isn't that correct? That is correct, yeah. And, um, you know, it was it was a very different time and there was still massive segregation when it came to radio stations. And uh, his radio station was actually one of the rare ones that would play black music and white music. But the big, the big push was always, if you could find a white guy who sang like that, you could sell jazz and blues to the mainstream audience, you know. Um, right. The jazz guys as well had real issues with it. It was actually a jazz musician named Dave Brubeck was one of the pushing forces that allowed actual black jazz musicians to tour and do well. And it is crazy to think that they invented this music, did all the work, and then got none right. of the credit. But I do have something to say because, um, you know, obviously, obviously black music is a massive influence on blues and early rock and roll. But there's a there's a small unsung hero in early rock and roll that I'd really like to talk about because uh, they don't get enough credit. Now, a lot of rock and, rock and roll and blues is kind of born of three styles being mixed together, basically. So what you've got is you've got your Christian folk music and traditional music, which is all just three chords, usually E. Oh, is that loud enough? E, A, and B. Now, if you play them like this, you've got a Christian song. Oh, I love Jesus. Jesus is my friend. That's a Christian song, right? All right. the black guys were listening to that music. And they mixed with those chords the sound of the train, which is where you get this noise from. Which is the sound... Of the rock and roll so if you combine the chords from the christian folk music with the train noises you get a basic 12 bar blues setup and that's how that's how little richard got his inspiration isn't that it correct is from the train but get this right the court the notes that you use to play the blues is what's called a pentatonic scale a five note scale like that one two three four five one two three four five now, who else uses the five-note scale? Chinese people. Who else was working on the trains? Chinese people. So the blues scale can actually be sort of followed all the way back to traditional Chinese music. Because if you play it like this, you get the blues. I can hear it now, yeah. But if you play it with lots of vibrato, you've got every traditional Chinese folk song. Yeah, I can hear the inspiration now. Yeah. 
So the poor old sort of Chinese workers, they don't get any credit, but they're <laughs> equally as important in the foundation of what became rock and roll as, uh, as all of the other guys who were working there. And of course, we even have to go further back in time to, unfortunately, the dark age in the American history, the slavery, yeah. to find, of course, inspiration as well. So tell me a little bit about this. How does this impact the music? Well, of course, quite often the, uh, the music that the people uh, in slavery would hear would be Christian music. So the reason it's those same chords as the, as the original Christian ones is they would go to church on the Sunday, they would hear those chords, and then they would change the words of the songs to match their own, you know, feelings and stuff. And because the musicians especially... They only had very basic tools. You know, they were lucky if they could get hold of a guitar or something like that. Usually it was just clapping and singing was all they had. And they just kept it to those same chord progressions that they'd heard in church. But they changed the words so they were more sort of secular. And that's where you get the idea of the blues usually being very sad and usually right. always early on being about trains and people leaving you or being taken away because that's, you know, what these people knew at the time. And that's how they ended up writing that sort of music. So... Yeah, it's it's right. a very it's a very fascinating thing. And as I said, uh, I'd like to go on record as to say the Chinese do not get enough credit for how much they actually credit, <laughs> you know, put in that music as well. You know, uh, right. So I would like to just go on record just to say, you know, the only thing that white people brought to blues and rock and roll <laughs> and what kind of became country rock later on was yodeling. That's the only <laughs> thing. And yodeling is by far the worst part of any sort of country <laughs> rock song. But yeah, right. that, came, that came with the white people from Sweden and Switzerland. And then if you listen to especially early rock and roll and country rock, you know, they do that. Yodeling, yodeling, yodeling. Right. And that's the only bit that the white people added. And as I said, by far the worst bit. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, I agree. But of course, let's talk about Elvis tries to fame. As you mentioned earlier, he comes into Sun Record, he wants to do a record for his mother, but he's just not quite there yet. So tell me how they become like this famous so, both sex symbol and rock and roll. So when he came musician. in, he, he recorded two songs the first day he came in. He recorded one lovely ballady type thing and one Christian song. And both of those songs, you know, the, the producers sitting in the office were like, uh, uh, you know, he's obviously a good singer, but this is not working. So they basically said, like, oh, we'll give you one more chance. And then he did like a straight up boogie woogie thing with a bit more energy. And they right. went, yes, please. That's the thing. We're going to have that. And that was, if I remember correctly, Blue Moon of Kentucky. That's exactly I... right. Yeah. And that was the that was the single that was then pressed, as I said, on this ascertained press straight away. So he would have recorded it that afternoon. They'd have had a master recording version of that an hour after he'd finished singing it. And then they could go to the radio station next door and play it on the radio, which is just right. crazy to think. And also, you've got to bear in mind as well, at that point, the recordings were so basic. Uh, you know, you didn't have lots of microphones. You couldn't overdub or have lots of different takes. So exactly what was played in that room is exactly what you then heard on the radio that evening. And it's, it's fascinating to think, you know. And it just kind of, it just grew from there. You know, he got his manager shortly after that, I think, old, Colonel Tom, right? Yeah, he was the one who was responsible for taking him out, and uh, he was the one who had the chicken dance, isn't? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he was the one who would move him into the different territories. So he went from just being Memphis, you know, and he would take the singles out and he would do it. But 
I don't think Elvis made an album in that first year and a bit. I think he just did singles for ages, as was often the way in that in those times. You didn't really make albums. Right. Singles were the quick and disposable way to make a lot of money. You could press them quick. They were cheap to make, you know, and you could sell them for quite a lot. And you could sell a product pretty much every week. You know, you could have a new single out, whereas an album obviously takes a bit of time and work. So mostly singles early on. And it's why if you can find those 50s Sun Records singles of Elvis, they are worth the big money. Well, I can imagine. And uh, we're going to take a little break from Elvis. We will come back to him. One of my favorite musicians, perhaps. Uh, you may know who I'm talking about, Jerry Lee, the killer, Lewis. So tell me a little bit about uh, him, because he started out as a preacher. And how did that go? Well, he was a preacher with a big old voice, wasn't he? And he could do, right. he could do the real sort of shouty stuff. And they, like, as I said earlier, like the Christian music really, really influenced what rock and roll sounded like. And I think for the most part, he was just imitating what he'd seen at those big, loud churches. And he was getting all involved. Um, it's quite funny, I think, because when you think rock and roll, you automatically think guitar. But he yeah. was a pianist rather than a guitarist, you know, and uh, he was known for like crazy behavior. And when you listen to it now, mm. when you listen to that early rock and roll now, it feels like the most tame music in the world. But when it came out, it was blowing people's minds. They were like, this is the loudest, noisiest, most raucous yeah. thing we've ever heard. We've got to get it out of there. <laughs> And wasn't it told when it came to Nashville, Tennessee, that guitar is the future? It's uh, not in piano. Yeah. And it's so weird because, like, he, I'm sure he, I mean, he definitely influenced hundreds of thousands of musicians. But weirdly, I suppose it's him and Little Richard. And then pretty much everybody else was like, no, we're going to play this music on guitar. But he had a very, very unique sound. And I think a very, whereas Elvis always had a nice croonery voice, I think. You know, Jerry Lee had a much gruffer delivery and a much sort of um, more of a bad boy image, even maybe. You know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and how did it come to end up in Sun Records? And how? I couldn't tell you that, so I'm afraid. I think probably the same way that so many of the other people did. You know, just right. wandering around probably through a manager or someone like that and just gone, hey, have a little listen. No, actually, I think if I remember correctly, he did come because his father sold all his eggs because they were a farmer and they supported Jerry Lee's career. Oh, they paid so for they came, go, did they? Yeah, yeah, so they had the piano. Money. Before he started out in Sun Record, he was tra traveling all over the countryside near where he lived. And yeah. he put this strapped the piano on the on the back of the pickup truck and they played around bars and gigs. And when it came to Sun Records, he demanded to see Sam Phillips. He wasn't into it at first, but then he heard him play and his, and I don't remember his name, but his uh, executive producer, I think, liked it. And he is the one that made it initially Jerry Lee's career. So let's talk about his first hit and what was, what do you consider his first hit that made oh, well, so famous i think great balls of fire is the one that he's really known for isn't it and like that right. is that i mean that is such an archetypal rock and roll song that's what's so interesting about that song is like it just completely sums up the sound of that entire movement and what i love the most about that sort of stuff is like it almost feels like it comes out of nowhere because there's 
a couple of things like you know as i said sort of gospel music had hints of it but nothing with this sort of drive and um big attack to it that existed before i don't think you know and then of course once he came out with that everybody was then pushing and pushing and pushing to try and make their version of it even louder right. and even faster and even bigger you know uh, tell me about the myth. there's a myth i don't know if you can but tell me about the myth where he actually set the piano on fire oh yeah i think, <laughs> I think there's quite, a myth we don't know if it's true but it's more of a legend and yeah, a myth in the rock and world world i think quite often it was all to do with the stage performance wasn't it i used to play regularly with a band called Tankus the Hench who are still going and you should you should look them up because they're amazing and their singer has a has a piano which is like hollowed out so it's actually just a keyboard in a piano frame and he's rigged it inside so it can fire off fireworks it can have fire coming out the top it can shoot lasers so I'm pretty sure all of that stuff was just a bit of lovely stagecraft you know he probably had right you know um but obviously all of that sort of stuff's really good for the old um image isn't it if people think that's true right. then that's really good you know it's like it's like ozzy biting the head off the bat you know he didn't do it on purpose he just thought it was a rubber bat that someone had thrown at him you know but then, right. of course that happened and the legend of that became much bigger than the act itself you know right and uh, there's some dark stuff in here in Julie's life as well because there's kind of some uh, sweet home alabama thing going on can you tell me about the marriage of his yeah so he married cousin. his 13 year old cousin didn't he which <sighs> i don't like to defend it because it is odd and it's not normal or correct thing <laughs> to do. but i think in memphis in the 50s it was much less odd than it is now you know but all of these rock and rollers they're all a bit like that and it's uh it's pretty bad because even buddy holly as well was married to a 14 year old girl wasn't he um right when he died you know and i just think in those times in especially around the south i think the the age of consent was like 13 or 14 and like quite often very very young couples would get married very very young in the south um you know he was technically a pedo but, <laughs> but at least by the laws and standards of the time you know he was he was above board I mean, like he definitely right. shouldn't have been married to a thirteen-year-old. <laughs> this was not very received very well when it came to the UK. So. No, that was it. You know, like as I said, down in the deep south of America at that time, being married at thirteen or fourteen was not unusual. And uh, when you come to England, obviously we had much stricter rules and laws then. You know, and it was it was harder for him, but. I don't know. As I said, the, the argument of different times is often put forward. But even Elvis, I mean, Elvis didn't marry Priscilla until she was 16, but they met when she was 12. And she used to right. stay at Elvis's house when she was 12 and 13 years old, you know. So, and he was also considerably older than Jerry Lee Lewis was when he married his cousin, you know. Right. So it all gets a bit, as I said, it all gets a bit murky around that time and especially with the guys from the south of america and as i said this is largely to do with how different the law was in that at that point you know but that brings us of course to the famous a million dollars quartet and can you tell me a little bit about what it was and how did it come to call a million dollars quartet so after 
after they'd all made all of their money and had really got famous, they all felt a big debt to Sun Records and Sam Phillips. And it just so happened all of their touring schedules all lined up and they were just in the studio one day. As far as I know, because I was in, I've been to Sun Records and I've stood in the room. And as far as I know, it wasn't a planned thing. They were just all there. They were all passing through. They all popped in to see Sam Phillips. And somebody said, hey, we've got the studio set up. Why don't we all just sing a few songs? And most right. of what they did together on that, on that one setting was old Christian songs. They all knew the words to maybe one of each other's songs that they knew from being on tour together. Um, and it was called the Million, Million Dollar Quartet because that was their combined album sales at the time. And obviously a million dollars in today's money is not a lot, but a million dollars in the 60s was crazy, you know. And it's uh, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis. Right. And this and, actually became a famous, inf infamous musical after. Yeah, later. They, yeah, they've recorded it as a musical. The, the actual recordings from the day are really beautiful to listen to as well, because as well as the few songs they did sing, they left the they left the tape running while they were recording so you just have the, all this beautiful chatter just them hanging out joking laughing having a nice time and it's really really fascinating to listen to and what's really nice is you can tell they were really good friends you know they really liked each other you really get that vibe you know right and it's kind of like the avengers of the music world that's right the rock and roll <laughs> avengers that's what they were <laughs> you know and it's just i mean i don't think I'm sure there were other times when maybe Elvis would have sung with one of the others or Johnny Cash would have sung with one of the others. But to get all four of them together like that was pretty, pretty special. And as I said, most of it's old religious music. You know, that's mostly what they what they did. So it, they're really beautiful recordings to listen to. They're all on YouTube. But a lot of the a lot of the stuff of them just talking in the studio, you have to go all the way to Sun Records to hear. They play it to you when you go in. It's there. actually on Spotify. You can hear some of the chatter as well. So oh, it's they got on some Spotify of the as well. Spotify yeah, as I well. think so. Oh, that is nice. Yeah. So it should be available if I remember correctly on Spotify. Just go on the search bar and search a million dollar quartet, and you'll find you won't yeah. regret it. Trust me. Well, well, but yeah, um, let's go back to. We're going to move away from Memphis for a while now. And uh, we're going to talk about another man that's a pioneer in rock and roll. And uh, his name is uh, Chuck Berry. So tell me a little bit about his own life and how he came into playing guitar. So Chuck Berry had a very, very tough upbringing. He's a proper rags to riches sort of setup, you know. And um, he comes from the proper blues tradition which is really nice you know uh so he would have grown up he would have grown up hearing the very traditional old school blues you know so whereas a lot of the white guys they come in through the church he was really really there you know and he's called the father of rock and roll because he basically took a load of jazz licks that he'd heard a load of blues style singing that he'd heard he nicked almost all of his lyrics <laughs> um because in those days, you know, there was no such thing as copyright for these songs. So a lot of his songs and ideas are very, very strongly based on blues songs he'd heard. Same with guys like Johnny Cash. And strangely, Elvis, I don't know if you know this, Elvis never wrote a single song in his career. Elvis only Ooh. sang other people's songs. Not a lot of people know that. But um, yeah, Chuck Berry was the guy who really gave us the, he gave us like the four piece blues rock band, guitar, bass, drums, vocal you know 
And when he come out, everyone just said, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> and how did it come to, and when did it start with chess records? Yeah, so he was out in Chicago to start with, wasn't he? And, and chess was kind of a, not a, not a competitor, but it was, a, you know, it was an alternate version of that. And I think B.B. King was down at chess, wasn't he? And because uh, B.B. King's from Chicago. And uh, yeah, uh, he spoke to the guy who was called Leonard Chess. <laughs> of course, that's his name. Right. Um, yeah. And he just same sort of story. He went in to do a little uh, a little recording with some guys from Bo Diddley's band just to show off what he could do. And then uh, it was one of the biggest hits the Chicago town had ever seen, you know. Right. Uh, I think Roll, Roll Over Beethoven was one of his really early ones. And then, of course, um, Johnny Be Good was shortly after that. So he really set the tone. But even Johnny Be Good, that, that lick at the beginning of Johnny Be Good is completely stolen. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> not, that's right. not original. He just played it on guitar instead of piano. And that's the difference. You know, that's the big difference. But it does have a unique setting with his songs because it's kind of telling a story. His oh, songs tell the story. Definitely, yeah. And like that's that's something that he he was really good at. And I think that comes from the old sort of blues man tradition, you know. So rather than the songs being about your girlfriend or anything like that, they're much more about their little stories, you know. Um, yeah. And he's really good. Yeah. And he, you know, he was one of the first guys to write rock and roll songs about rock and roll as well. <laughs> Right. It's like, what should you write a rock and roll song about? Oh, just rocking and rolling. Let's just have that. Right. <laughs> a little known fact, I don't know if you know this, but uh, there was an interviewer who asked Jerry Lee who, if he was the father of rock and roll and uh, who created, if he created, created rock and roll. And uh, he said, no, Chuck Berry did. Yeah. I think Chuck Berry... Whereas everybody else was working on stuff, I really do think it's Chuck Berry and Little Richard are the two guys who really gave us the versions that we still have today. Like you would still see a Chuck Berry style rockabilly band or even bands like the White Stripes are basically a rock, a rock and roll band, you know, and the sort of right. riffs they're writing, the way they're singing, all of that. That's exactly what Chuck Berry did, you know, and he was the dude because... He was just awesome. Another cool fact about him, first ever celebrity sex tape is Chuck Berry. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it's, uh, he had some dark moments too. And uh, he got arrested. And what, why was he arrested? And what was it for? Oh, was that the drugs one? He got done for drugs a couple of times, didn't he? Uh, it wasn't Joe. He was trying to smuggle. Oh, right. Say. Yeah. And he's trying to put a downhill on his career mm. as well. Oh yeah, and he was a bit of a he was a bit he was a bit nasty with the ladies, wasn't he as well? Mm -hmm. yeah. But of course, that brings us. We mentioned him uh, earlier in the pod, this episode, but we, that brings us to Little Richard, and uh, how we mentioned this again. So, but uh, he did he he took guys to the train track again one time. And tell me a little bit about that story. Uh I don't know about that one, I'm afraid. When he, where he got his inspiration from the train and how he got into, how he wrote the rhythm, you know. Because oh, was, actually... Yeah, was he hearing the trains go past and then he was just yes, going, all right, going yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, and he made his, he made his uh, band members clap the hand in the rhythm that the train went. And that's what we're doing in the recording. I think... But it, I think Little Richard's biggest um, 
sort of thing that he brought to rock and roll is the showmanship. I think he was the guy. Like now, when you think of rock and roll, it's all about flamboyancy. You know, once again, in the 70s, it's all about sequin suits and doing big split jumps and stuff like this. Right. Little Richard was doing this back in the 50s. And also a sort of sexual ambiguity is the other thing that he brought because he was an openly gay black man in the 50s, which must have just been a very difficult life to Ooh. have led. Yeah. But then, but then he brings all that into the music, you know, and he brings sort of a sexuality and a very, um, you know, a very open and exciting idea to it, you know. He tried like cross-dressing as well, didn't he? Well, that's it. He's very, very androgynous. You know, he's he's kind of male and female, which you obviously then see in artists like David Bowie, further down the line, all of your 60s and 70s, more flamboyant acts. They were all copying his look and his style. And even people like, um, what's his name? (laughs) The pianist down the line who was, they made the movie about it, Behind the Chandelier. I don't remember that. Liberace is called Liberace the pianist. He was massively influenced by Little Richard. And uh, even as far up as like Motorhead, if you ever hear Lemmy talking about the best of the best, who was the who was the best of the best, he always says Little Richard because you know, to be as unique and openly weird as him in the fifties was just a, a massive, massive and difficult thing. And especially during the segregation as well. Oh, mate. Not only was it segregation era, it was way before homosexuality was legal. So he's got two massive, massive things he was dealing with every day. And instead of hiding those things, he came out. And I think, if anything, I think what he was doing would would have probably helped a lot of young gay men in the 50s understand that maybe it is okay to be like that, you know. And not only can you be that, you can be a huge influence and a huge... Uh, you know, and a huge person that people look up to and right. still be those things, you know. And, I, and I indeed, just think he's great. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love playing his music on piano when I jump, uh, jump back home. Back home. Yeah, he's just, but, it's just so good. And once again, it's the energy, isn't it? It's the energy. Right, yeah. He sings it's so just... loud that it distorts, which I really like because you never hear that right. in modern recordings. But when he probably does those, like, ah, you really like yeah, the yeah. microphone distorting. And I just, you know, even in his old age, like you see videos of him as an old man still absolutely owning it and just doing a brilliant job. Right. And of course, with him, you can trace him all the way back to the, the very, very roots of funk even come from come from Little Richard, you know, the sort of, as I said, the flamboyance, the costumes, the the way he danced, all of this stuff influenced people for not just the rock and rollers, but people 30, 40 years down the line, you know, and that absolutely amazing force in music. Unbelievable. Right. And uh, he, he also paid a lot of respect to the women in his life as well, didn't he? Like Lucille and the John Miss Molly, et cetera. Yeah. I think you know he had he had a lot of respect. <laughs> there's yeah. there's also the funny. Do you know in the eighties he claimed he wasn't gay anymore, <laughs> because he became very very Christian. Yeah, his slightly later years, and there's some very good interviews with him in the eighties on chat shows where he says, "Oh, I used to be gay, but I'm not gay anymore." <laughs> and then if you watch interviews with him another ten years on, he's like, "Nah, I'm like well gay." <laughs> <laughs> I've always been very gay. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Great. And of course, uh, I don't. I think we don't end with uh, with Ray Charles. How? What? What? What's so special about Ray Charles? When because he's just this amazing pianist as well. Oh yeah. And, well, well, Ray Charles. Obviously, the big thing about him is that he is blind. <laughs> you know, not only is he an amazing musician, but you know, he he really had to overcome a lot to to do that. You know, and like a lot of. Um, like a lot of good musicians he was the highest earning member of his family by the time he was sort of seven or eight years old he he used to tour as a as a musical piano playing child to earn money for his family you know which is just crazy to think and he's another one his influence is is immensely far-reaching you know and i think you know there's no stevie wonder without him obviously because i think he sort of said to you know he said like like little Richard spoke to the gay guys, you know, someone like Ray Charles spoke to people who had maybe a disability or were blind and said, Hey, you don't have to be just that blind guy. You can actually be a, you can be as good, if not better than everybody else, you know, and he's another one whose influence is, is unbelievably huge. Uh, just thousands of musicians play music because of yeah. Ray Charles. Sounds like he hit the, hit the road jacks to the test of time in, and it's still used in jam sessions with oh, bands today. And if you look at, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Blues Brothers, obviously, like oh, mostly yeah. his songs, mostly his style. And, uh, you know, you, you have, have him being massively famous through the 50s and 60s and then this huge resurgence in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, and every... It seems every generation rediscovers the good rock and rollers and they go, Hey, this stuff's great. <laughs> right. You know. I just love I just love to see when they're working with Ray Charles is uh, the music store owner. Yeah. <laughs> the camera scene in Blues Brothers. It's yeah. classic one. That's great. Yeah. It's very, very good. But was he born blind or, or did he become blind? I think he became blind. I've seen the biopic of him and I think he could see for the first two or three years of his life. I think he got like a degenerative disease. So I think he went blind very, very young. And I think right. he played piano because he went blind. You know, I think he started the music because of that, you know, which is very sad. But yeah. it obviously worked out well for him. So, <laughs> Right. And uh, that's just uh, we need to take a look at my yeah. Uh, I think that's it for for this week's episode. Um, do you have anything you wish to promote? The uh, yes, anything you want me to put in the link below you when I publish me, this episode? You can find me online, facebook.com forward slash Sam Road CE, which stands for Sam Rhodes Comedy Explosion. If you've got the internet, you can sign up to Next Up the streaming service and you can watch my wonderful comedy special which is fantastic it's on there um i'm just sam Rhodes ce everywhere you can find me basically including computer gaming if you want to play me at some games <laughs> right um of course uh, i just want to say that if you like this episode like share and subscribe right we are available on apple Podcasts, spotify anchor and many more uh, yeah, we are also on Instagram now, which is uh, at well.h12, same as the title here. And uh, next week, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening and uh, thank you for being back. I'm looking forward to coming back to your comedy clubs again. <laughs> uh, I hope we'll see you soon. It was nice to speak to you again. And you, pal. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, See ya. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 